0: Good morning. Great to see you guys this morning. My name is Rob. I'm one of our teaching pastors. Great morning of worship already. Um, There's actually more to come after the message. I'm excited about this morning being with you. We've been walking through this gospel of Mark. And for those of you that are just joining us, we're, I don't know, five or six weeks in. And the remarkable thing about Mark is it gives us a chance to imagine all right, if if Jesus, this man, was actually God, like what's he going to do when he gets to earth? Like, how will Jesus interact with people? And one of the intriguing questions I've had as I was studying the passage this week was this idea of what is Jesus going to do with the social boundaries that, that we human beings have sort of artificially constructed? So to follow what I mean, uh, I don't know the last time you've been into a, a downtown in the major city or, or even Franklin, you know, not a major city, but a, a, a center where there's enough people walking around from various walks of life. Have you ever noticed that people tend to group themselves just sort of naturally in people that look like them? Uh, I was thinking about this, and I was walking downtown, and I realized, yeah, okay, those are like the musicians right there. How do I know they're the musicians? Well, I just know. You can just tell, right? Like, they're wearing the skinny jeans, and they got that Nashville haircut, right? And then those are the tourists over there, right? And like, they're, they're probably, um, you know, northern tourists. You just kind of just tell, and maybe you hear something the way they, they talk. Like, I, I bet you they're from Michigan, you know, and then you keep walking a little bit further. And it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's the young family. They just moved here from from Nashville, and they had kids, so they moved to Williamson County, and they're all t- clumped together. We cluster ourselves together. It's just part of what we are. It's part of what we do. Human beings have been doing this ever, ever since the beginning. It's how we operate. It's deeply ingrained into our psyche. Now, It's not a bad thing necessarily, but it can lead to bad things. So let me give you an example. What we tend to do as human beings is we say, I want to be close, I want to be intimate with people that look like me, talk like me, think like me, believe like me. And then, and this is the part where it can go wrong, is we oftentimes will sort of construct artificial boundaries around our group and say we're going to be in, and other people that aren't like us are going to be out. And in time, and if sort of wrongly motivated, these boundaries can actually lead to all kinds of conflict. In fact, I, I would challenge you to think through, human history, and think about any war, any conflict, any injustice that comes to mind, and, and somewhere in its root, somewhere in its core, part of the recipe of that injustice or conflict was this idea that our group, or my thought, or our ideas, or the way that we think about life is superior or better to someone else, and therefore we're going to shut them out, or we're going to take what, something from them, etc., etc., etc. This is part of our fallen human nature now to build these boundaries. Now, Jesus comes into the midst of this. God himself, would we believe Jesus is God in the flesh, right? He is God incarnate, and he begins to answer all kinds of interesting questions. So for example, one question that I've wondered, you know, and it's not, it sounds weird to, to, to talk about it necessarily in the present tense, like I've wondered when all these things already happened 2,000 years ago, and these questions are answered. But as you reread it, you remember things, and you see things. And, 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 and it struck me a couple weeks ago, what is God going to do with all his power? Like, think about this. The creator comes to be with the creatures. What's he going to do with his power, his authority? Is he going to lord it over them? Is he going to get everybody in line? Is he going to assimilate everybody? Is he going to challenge them? Is he going to rebuke them? What is he going to do? And we start seeing so far this theme of authority. Every time Jesus has exercised his authority, it's for the good of the person that he's using the authority over. So, for example, he uses the authority over demons in order to heal a man who had demons inside of him, he uses his authority over the fish in order to you know command the fish to jump in the nets so Peter and his other friends would be convinced that this rabbi is someone worth following for their own benefit, for their own good. He uses his authority over disease in order to heal disease and set people free from from the boundaries of disease. So Jesus operates, God operates his authority according to the good, according to the benefit and blessing of the people who receive that authority. Now, this question that I'm wondering about today, how does Jesus interact with our boundaries, our artificial walls, our groupings, uh, uh, the segmentation and the way our society is so fractured. What does God think about that? How will Jesus engage with that? What will he do with that if he's actually God? Can he somehow transcend it? Will he be confined to it? What's that going to look like? Maybe even a better question is what do God's boundaries and walls look like? Who is in and who is out when it comes to God and his kingdom? We're going to start getting answers to these questions in the text this morning that uh, Joe read for us. So go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. And as you're turning there, let me review where we've been. The issue of authority has been front and center for most of the gospel. Now the issue of sin is front and center. And that transition, that hinge point came last week when Michael taught about the the paralyzed man that his friends lowered down through the roof, right? And he's sick and everyone's expecting Jesus just to heal him, just like he's been healing all these other people. And Instead of just healing this man, he throws out a curveball. And before he heals him, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. What do you mean your sins are forgiven? You know, he didn't come to get his sins forgiven. And who is Jesus that he could declare your sins are forgiven anyway? And that starts a conflict with the religious people. Jesus, you can't say this man's sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. Right? Now, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. That was kind of the lesson. And now this week, we're also focused on the issue of sin. And the theme this week is not about Jesus' authority to forgive sins. He's already established that. The issue of this week is, how will Jesus interact with the worst of the worst sinners? Like, what will he do with the blatant sinners, the ones that wear their sin on their sleeves? And how will he interact with those that are so religious and so righteous that they think they're different from? the sinners. That's what we're going to see in this passage. And it's fascinating. And there's something there for you because I know there's something in me. Like I was pulled in like five different directions as I studied this text. I was like, I identify with the sinners, I identify with the Pharisees, I identify with the tax collectors. And there's something in this passage for us this morning. Let's pick it up in 13 and we'll read 13 and 14. Explain a little bit. We'll work our way through the passage. And I've got two lessons for us at the end. Mark two thirteen, and he, Jesus, went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Pause there for a moment. Now, Jesus is still assembling his 12 Disciples. So there were a lot of people that followed Jesus. He had a lot of lowercase D disciples, but there were twelve that were his closest. You know, capital D disciples, and uh, these are the ones that we know of and we name our kids after, as we talked about uh, several weeks ago. I want to go so far as to say the calling of Levi. Who, by the way, if you're not sure who this is talking about, his, his other name is Matthew. Right? He wrote one of the gospels, one of the books of the Bible, Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. This is Matthew. Okay. Now Matthew was a tax collector. And Jesus called him out of that to be his disciple. I want to say, I want to go so far to say the calling of Matthew or Levi is one of the most remarkable incidents in the early ministry of Jesus. Now, that's a big statement because you think about what he's just done. He he healed a man that was paralyzed. Like, he's cast out demons. He's done all these amazing miracles. How could I say that this is, is maybe more remarkable than all of those things? Well, you have to understand the social position of tax collectors in that society. They were the scum of the earth. Like, they were the worst of the worst. Why is that? Well, as you know, the Roman Empire ruled over the whole region. All Jews were under the th- thumb of the Romans, right? Now, if you read history, the Romans committed atrocities against the people that they ruled over. They were ruthless There was no mercy when it came to the Romans. Everybody lived in fear of the Romans. That's how they ruled, with with fear, with might, with power. Now, they allowed a Jewish king as sort of a puppet, but he could only do, we know him as Herod, right? He could only do so much as the Romans allowed him to do. Now, at this point in history, Herod the Great had died, and the regions had been divided up into his sons. So the northern region Galilee, which is where Jesus is here, uh, would have been under the rulership of Herod Antipas. But Herod Antipas had had no real power. It was really the Romans that were calling the shots. Now, certain Jews said, okay, I'm going to learn to work within the system. I'm going to be a part of the oppression of the Romans and I'm going to demand. Payment as a uh, a, essentially a substitute for the Roman soldiers from these Jewish people, my fellow countrymen. And not only did they collect the taxes, but we know from many anecdotal stories throughout history that these men, almost without exception, were taking advantage of the people they collected taxes from. They were allowed to not just collect the minimum tax; they could collect whatever they thought they could get. So if they saw you passing by, and they could tell from you know your your swag, and you know you got that that guy's got some coin, right? to charge you a higher price because they know you could pay it and they're not going to let you through unless you pay that higher price and these tax collectors became very wealthy Zacchaeus was one of these tax collectors. Remember when, when you know, he, he sort of changed his life? He goes, I, I'm gonna give back to everyone that I've cheated, right? It, it was a lot of people. It was everybody. These tax collectors were cheaters. The closest analogy that, that I could use for us is just imagine if, if we'd lost our freedom as a nation and some other power, you know, you know, may, maybe most alarmingly, imagine if the Islamic State were to rise up with enough power and, and, and they conquered the U.S. It's hard to imagine how that could happen. but just followed me down this path. And imagine if there were certain of us American Christians that served the Islamic State by collecting taxes for them and then keeping a big portion for ourselves and getting wealthy while everybody else was poor and under the oppression of the Islamic State. That's what's going on here. This is Levi. This is Matthew. And so it is amazing that Jesus calls him. It's remarkable I think it's the most remarkable thing Jesus has done up to this point. He says, Levi, come follow me. And There's nothing in the text that, that make, makes us think that Levi was somehow more righteous than the other tax collectors. He was a tax collector. And Jesus said, come follow me. Now, a tax collector was considered so unclean that his very presence in your house would make your house unclean. And, and, and you had to go through a bunch of ritual to get the house cleansed. Now, I want you to think about Matthew for just a minute. It, it, it turns out... That Matthew's story ends in redemption, doesn't it? Because here's this rotten scoundrel, uh, a turncoat, you know, a man that was hated by his Jewish brethren for good reasons, for right reasons. And yet, after Jesus transforms his life, he writes one of the four gospels. And who does he write his gospel to? The Jews. His gospel was specifically targeted to his heritage, the Jewish people. There's redemption. He's sort of pronouncing good news to all the people that he had oppressed and all the people that he had cheated. He said, listen, I'm changed. I found life. I want you to as well. That's part of Matthew's redemptive story. Uh, Let's keep going through the text because I want you to see what happens in response to Jesus doing this crazy radical thing of inviting Levi, the tax collector, to follow him. We'll pick it up in verse 15. And it happened that he was, Jesus, was reclining at the table in his, meaning Matthew, Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Pause right there for a minute. This essentially would have been a party at Matthew's house, probably kind of like a going-away party, because, you know, Matthew's leaving his tax profession, and he's now going to go follow Jesus, and there's no turning back, right? And so all his buddies are there, and they're sending him off. I I, I hear a lot of laughter. I hear a lot of jokes, you know. I hear a lot of, like, you know— elbow rubbing is like what in the world are you getting yourself into with this rabbi who knows but this is what's going on verse 16 when the scribes of the pharisees saw that jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors they said to his disciples why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners that's a great question it's the right question and if you put yourself in that context it's like if they didn't ask that question that would be weird that would be strange Um, Now, in first century culture in the Middle East, to have a meal with someone was much more, um, it said a lot more, it was much more intimate than what you and I think of when we have a meal. To have a meal with someone said, I'm identifying with you. You know, and and Bible scholars have come up with a little phrase. for this. They, They called it, in this culture, they called it table fellowship. When you extended table fellowship to someone, you broke bread with them, this was a, a symbol that, that you've determined who your friends are going to be. You've marked off the segment of society that you identify with, right? And so Jesus, what he's doing here, and, and the, the Pharisees get it right away. It's, 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 it's They're right to think this. Jesus is aligning himself with despised sinners. He is. I mean, this wasn't an accident. Jesus didn't accidentally end up in Levi's house. Right. This is a strategic decision that Jesus is making. And in fact, I'd extend it even further to say that this is a defining characteristic of Jesus throughout his life, the sharing of table fellowship with those whom the rest of society had rejected. He does it over and over and over. And quite frankly, it gets him in a whole lot of trouble. Now let's talk about the scribes of the Pharisees is the the phrase in this particular verse. Now we know the Pharisees. Some of you know about the Pharisees. Some of you may have heard of the name, but you don't really know what they are. The Pharisees were a religious sect in Judaism at that time, and they were one of the strictest religious sect. So think about the Orthodox Jews, you know, that that wear distinctive clothing. They separate themselves from the rest of the common Jews, you know, even today. If you go to Israel or or, or New York, (laughs) you'll see this. Now, the, the, the strict Pharisees were experts of the law, but there was a subset of the Pharisees called the scribes of the Pharisees that were even more experts of the law. Like these folks didn't even just have their master's degree in the law. They had like a double PhD in the law and they would hold the rest of the society accountable to the law of Moses. And they went far beyond the law of Moses and they incorporated all these other laws that had crept in over the thousand years, uh, uh, in, in a couple thousand years in between. So there was all kinds of rules, all kinds of regulations. Even if you go to Israel today, when it comes to Sabbath, is all kinds of crazy things. Like they can't push the buttons of the elevator on the Sabbath because that's working. Like you can't turn the handles on the, the wash basins in the bathroom. So they have separate, you know, facilities, of buckets of, uh, you just you dip your hand in bucket. There's all kinds of rules and regulations. And these scribes of the Pharisees were the ones that were responsible for enforcing them. They, they were the religious police. Okay. And of course, alarm bells go off. A so called rabbi is having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. Ding, 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 ding. You know, all over the city. Everybody, what, what's happening? What's going on? Now, you've got to understand what, we, what they mean by sinners. You know, we hear the word sinners today, I don't know what comes to your mind, you know, maybe like, uh, I don't know, really, you know, people that have done something really bad, or maybe you just think of sinner. well, we're all sinners, this kind of thing. The, the technical term that's being used here, here in this context was anyone who was not a religious Jew, anyone who was not an observant or a clean Jew, anyone who was just a common Jew, or, or, or we, we might say backsliders, right? Those are the sinners in this context. And it was them, and then it was anyone else that could be lumped in that category. You see what's happening here? The religious Jews had set up an artificial boundary. And they had defined there are righteous ones and there are sinners. And we're going to stay away from those sinners so that we don't get tainted by them. You see. Now, you don't have to go that far in your own mind, in your own heart, in your own imagination. We do similar things today. We do, we do. We don't like it, but we do. And and, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But but these uh, Pharisees were essentially saying this new rabbi might be able to do some impressive miracles, but he has defiled himself by eating with all these unclean people and by extending table fellowship to them. He's chosen the wrong side. That's what's happening here. Now, Jesus' response is fascinating to me. Uh, Let's read again verse 17. Hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus doesn't apologize, does he? In fact, he, he goes beyond just not apologizing and he says, These sinners are the reason that I'm here. I've come for them, I've come to the, call them to something. Well, call them to what? Well, you see that the way the rest of Jesus' life plays out. He's come to call them to purity, come to call them to repentance, but it looks differently than what the Pharisees thought it should look like. And so uh, there's an interesting in- in- analogy that Jesus is using here. He's saying, look, I- I'm kind of like a physician. I'm kind of like a doctor, but-, but not just for physical ailments and, and bodily illnesses. My-, my real purpose here is to heal sin is to forgive sin. And I, I demonstrated this the other day with, with the paralyzed men, and, it, and, I, and I know it got me into some hot water. But, but now you're going to see that I'm going to be with sinners because I am the healer of sin. I am the forgiver. And so just as you would expect a doctor to be with sick people, you've got to expect the healer to be the forgiver, to be with those who are sinful. Now, there's interesting irony here. At first glance, glance, it seems like Jesus is letting the Pharisees off the hook. It does, you know. know, Probably that's how you read it, because that's how I read it. Uh, It looks like he's saying, okay, you know, you guys, you're already clean. You're already good. Just keep doing what you're doing. I've come for the sick people, and I'm going to hang out with them. You guys aren't sinners, so, you know, you you do your thing, and I've come for the sinners. That's actually not what's going on here. How do we know that? Well, Jesus is saying, I've come to call sinners sinners not come to call righteous. So the question then gets to, well, who is righteous? Of all people at that time, there was one group of people that knew the scriptures better than anyone else. It was the Pharisees. It was the scribes. Here's what they knew about who was righteous. They knew Ecclesiastes 7.20. They would have had it memorized. It said this, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. The Pharisees knew Psalm 14. They would have had it memorized too. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You can't declare it any more uh, precisely than that. The Pharisees weren't righteous. In fact, it's interesting, later in his ministry, Jesus has the harshest words for the Pharisees of any other people he talks to. And what is he calling them out on? Their self-righteousness. He's calling them out on the idea that they think they're righteous and they're really not. And that self-righteousness, that we are better and more holy and cleaner than these other people, that in and of itself was a deep unrighteousness inside their hearts. In fact, what Jesus does is he begins to use all these analogies with the Pharisees later in his ministry and he, he calls them, for example, whitewashed tombs. Look really pretty on the outside. White, fresh, beautiful. But underneath there's no life. It's only Death he uses this another analogy. He was just like, you're so focused on cleaning the outside of the cup when the inside of the cup is what gets dirty. The inside of the cup is what's filthy. That makes no sense. First clean the inside of the cup and then the outside of the cup can be clean as well and it's drinkable. You see, Jesus starts using this analogy to help the Pharisees understand they are just as unrighteous as the sinners, but their righteousness is hidden because it's, their unrighteousness is hidden rather because it's in here. So we have this second conflict now between Jesus and the religious authorities. The first was, Jesus, you don't have authority to to, to forgive sin, only God does. That was last week. The second conflict here is, Jesus, you're hanging out with the wrong crowd, you've chosen the wrong side, you can't defile yourself with them. And it's this self-righteousness that's being presented here. Now, what's at the root of this conflict? Is it not that tendency in human nature that we all have? to split ourselves away from people that are not like us and build walls and barriers and stand in judgment to try to make ourselves feel better about ourselves or, or because we fear what will happen if other people come into our zone. Is that not what's actually going on at the root? But I want you to see two different motivations, the motivations of the Pharisees and the motivations of Jesus. The motivations of the Pharisees are to stay separate, to stay undefiled, to stay clean, Right to keep their reputations, etc. what's Jesus' motivation? He wants to move toward the need. Jesus is motivated by compassion. In fact, there's this um, interesting study that, that the, the great teacher and theologian BB Warfield published in 1912, okay? So you can go back about 100 years. And uh, B.B. Warfield spent months and months starting all the emotional words used in the Gospels to describe Jesus. In, In other words, trying to figure out not just what Jesus said and did, but how Jesus felt. Like what kinds of emotion do the Gospel writers attribute to Jesus? The number one emotion that Jesus expressed that's attributed to Jesus in the Gospels is compassion, I really like the way the writer Frederick Buechner defines compassion. He says, Compassion is that fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live inside somebody else's skin. I'll pause there for a second. Do you hear incarnation in that? Compassion is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. It was Jesus' compassion that compelled him to touch the unclean leper. It was Jesus' compassion that called him, that that, that forced him to, to call Matthew out of his destructive lifestyle into something new. And now it was Jesus' compassion that's causing him to cross over social boundaries to have dinner with these sinners, you see. So here's the first lesson for us, two lessons. The first lesson for us is following the way of Jesus means becoming boundary breakers like Jesus was. He was a boundary breaker. You can't read through the Gospels and not see it. Most of us aren't good at that. So most of us like feel some conviction and we don't like seeing this, but it's just there. And if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to follow Jesus, we've got to learn to become boundary breakers. Now, you know, I, I want to give you some good news in a minute here, but, but let's, let's hang on this, hard, this hardship. I and mean, for some of you, do this much better than I do, but for most of us, this is a real challenge. Um, here are some of our culturally imposed boundaries that, that I've seen and, and observed in myself and in and others around me boundaries of race and ethnicity, boundaries of socioeconomic status, boundaries of political loyalties, boundaries of religion, boundaries of worldview, boundaries of lifestyle this week I, I was with some Christian friends of mine and, and we were talking about this passage. I was kind of telling them where I was going in the message. And we asked this question, you know, the question is, who do we instinctively resist entering into close friendship with? Like, who's the hardest for us to, to befriend? Here were some of the categories that came out. People who have very different political views than me. Like some of you in the room, that's you, man. You, you've, got, you've got such strong political views. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm glad you care about that stuff. But it's really hard for you to have a friendship across that aisle. It's just hard. Like you just don't want to do it, right? It's like, it's like worse than like a, a college football allegiance for you, right? Uh, here's another category. Um, someone in a, in a very different socioeconomic sphere. You know, now, you know, most of us would, would not sort of say, oh, yeah, man, I think those people are just worthless. You know, you're not going to say that out loud. But, but there's a part of you that, like, has enough in you that needs to sort of identify with people of your own class. Like, isn't this disgusting? But it is true. It is in our hearts. Here's another one. This is one that I identify with directly. I have trouble forming a deep friendship with someone who thinks Christians are the enemy. Here I am, an evangelical Christian. I'm an evangelical Christian pastor. And I know that there's certain segments of society that, that honestly believe that we're the enemy. And some of that may be our fault. A lot of it's not our fault, but they actually believe that we're the enemy. I have a hard time reaching across that and saying, I just want to be your friend. I want to be your friend. Let me demonstrate that to you. And we could go on and on. Here's the point. We all have our own conceptions of tax collectors and sinners. You can't not... It's part of what's in here. It's part of your human nature. It's not just out there. It's in here. You want to know why it's in here? Because it's in here. And it's in here and here and here. It's in all of our hearts. Now, what do we do with this? Here's the problem. You can't just go home today and say, I'm done with that. I'm going to reach across the barriers, reach across the borders. I'm going to befriend people that are different than me. I'm going to share the gospel with them. I'm going to be just like Jesus in this. You can't go home and say, man, that was a convicting sermon. I'm different. I'm changed. I'm new. I'm dinner tonight, right? My, my, my homosexual activist neighbor across the road is coming over to dinner tonight, right? That doesn't work. Now, why doesn't that work? You can't do it because the problem goes beyond your behavior and it goes into the crevices of your own heart, Remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, don't don't, don't just try to clean the outside of the cup. It's the inside that needs cleaning. The only way, and, and this is the second lesson, the only way you will ever be able to become a friend of outcasts and sinners is until you identify yourself as one of them. That changes everything that barrier, that wall comes right down. You've got to see, I've got to be an outcast. I've got to be a sinner. Because if I'm not, I'm not at the table with Jesus. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes are outside. The sinners and the outcasts, the tax collectors, are inside with Jesus. Which place do you want to be? This is one of those passages you have to identify with either the sinners. If you don't identify with them by default, you're identifying with the Pharisees. It strikes me that at the end of the story, who ends up in a better position? The sinners or the so-called righteous? I'll give you a hint. One group is breaking bread with Jesus. There is a great reversal. The ones who think they are healthy prove themselves to be sick. The ones who know they are sick find health. And I want to say this about the Pharisees because I think for most of us in this room, we've got to identify with them because it's just true. It's, it's who we are in the story. I'll say this about the Pharisees. If they only understood their need, if they only saw themselves as unhealthy sinners, just like everybody else, they could have come in and eaten. The door to that dinner party was open. They just didn't want to walk through because they didn't want to identify with who was in there. They thought they were better. They thought they were different. In fact, in, in John's gospel, he records this statement that Jesus said to the Pharisees at one point in time. This is so striking to me. You, Pharisees, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these scriptures That testify about me, and you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So, this is how it is in God's economy, in God's kingdom. Everyone is invited in, but you can only go in if you identify as a sinner. You you see that in this text? You can only go in if you know your need for forgiveness and healing, if you recognize the darkness in you. You can go in and be healed. And and I would say it's not even that you can't go in if you don't admit that. It's that you won't go in because you'll think the party's not for you. You know, I'm not like those sinful people. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. I don't need a whole lot of change. I don't need a lot of transformation, forgiveness, restoration in me. Now, let me just take a minute. I got to say something to those of you that are in here that are thinking, man, Rob, I'm not on the Pharisee end. I'm on the center end, and I know I'm on the center end, and I don't just think I'm worthy to be in Jesus' presence. I've gone too far. I've done too much. It's been too long since I've talked to him. I've done too many bad, wretched things and I can't stop doing them. Some of you are there this morning. Here's what I want to say to you. Jesus says, I have come to call sinners. So Do you know, do you know, do you know where Jesus is? He's with anyone who understands their need for forgiveness. Anyone. Anyone who says, my heart is ill and I need a doctor. That's where Jesus is. And let me ask you something. Will you please forgive us, the church, for making you feel like you got to get your act together before you can come to Jesus? I'm really, really serious. Will you please forgive us for that? We don't have our act together. We're all hypocrites. And we need to start owning that more. You see, we're sinners. All of us are. All of us are outcasts. All of us are separated from God. Church, let me say this to you. Once you're in, right? Like once you've said, I need to be at that table with Jesus because I'm a sinner. Once you've gone into the party and received forgiveness, who are you to say now I'm more righteous than anyone else? That's ridiculous. You can't say that once you identify yourself as an outcast and a sinner. Once you see that you're one of them, you begin to see that Jesus is calling the other outcasts, the other sinners, just like he called you. And here's where your heart changes because it propels you out of your comfort little safe zone and wants to get into life with other people that that seem to be a little bit more messy because you realize, you know what, I'm I'm you. I'm you. And it's not just I was you. I'm still you. The darkness in my heart that wants to judge you reminds me through the gospel of grace that I have been forgiven only by the grace of God, not in anything I've done. Now, this is the gospel. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to come and receive. This is not one of those messages that you hear it and then go home this week and, and, and live it. This is one of those messages that you hear it and, and, and then you, you come and you respond. What do I mean by this? We're not going to put anybody on the spot. We're not going to ask for testimonies or anything like this. We're, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Because here's what the table represents, and I'll explain in a few minutes how we're going to do this. Uh, here's what the table represents. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, Okay, some of you, you, you've been at the table with Jesus, you know, metaphorically speaking, all your entire life almost, right? You, you, you admitted you were a sinner. You came to Christ for forgiveness at an early age. Some of you, you never got it until today. Like right now, like, like ding dong is going off in your head, right? And you're thinking, all I have to do is identify as a sinner and I can come to Jesus? Is it that simple? Yes, it's that simple. Here's what I want to say to you. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey or your lack thereof up to this point, life begins when you're able to see your own need, when you identify yourself as someone who needs healing from Jesus because you're not righteous. That's where life begins. That's where healing begins. So here's how we're gonna do the Lord's table. We're gonna do it a little bit differently. Rather than pass the elements to you, we're gonna ask you to come forward. And when you're coming forward to receive the bread and, and, and the, the juice, what you're testifying right, visibly is that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. And whether it's the first time you've understood that or the 10,000th time you've understood that, we want you to come and receive today. We want you to identify as a sinner today. The t- I'll say it this way. The bread and the cup are available this morning to anyone who identifies as a sinner and comes to Jesus seeking forgiveness and new life. Listen, I want to say two categories of people that the table is not for this morning, right? Number one, it's not for you if you don't think you need it. It's not for you if you're, convinced, if you're not convinced you need to be healed. You know, if, you, if, you, if you are a Pharisee right now and you believe that you're righteous apart from receiving that gift from Jesus, don't come to the table. I don't say that as a judgment. I just say it's just not for you. you, you you're not going to enter into that party because you're not identifying with the ones that Jesus came to save, Secondly, it's also not for you if you admit that you're a sinner but you don't want to come to Jesus for forgiveness and healing. And some of you in this room, you might say, I don't have a problem saying I'm not perfect or, you know, a sinner, if you want to use that term, pastor. But but I'm going to find healing and, and I'm going to make my life okay in other ways. I don't need Jesus to forgive anything. If that's you this morning, the table's not for you. But it could be. It could be. If you would just say, I'm willing to put my faith in this one to forgive me through the body that is broken, through the blood that was shed. And some of you, maybe for the first time, are willing to receive grace this morning. And you can do that by coming down and receiving communion with us. It's not the communion that saves you. It's a tangible expression of your faith in the Savior who saves you. So let me explain some logistics. We're going to have five stations in the room. We'll have four stations up here, and we'll have one station in the back. When you come down one of the aisles, if you could stay to the right and then receive communion, and then when you go back, go on the opposite side of the aisle, that'll help our traffic flow. The band's got a song. They're just going to sing over us while we receive. And I want to read you some of the words of this song. It's an old hymn called Come Ye Sinners. Here's what this hymn will speak to us. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And then listen to one other verse. Come ye laden, or sorry, come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Anybody identify with that? Lost, ruined by the fall. But listen to this. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I don't want us to be like the Pharisees standing outside a table fellowship with Jesus. Don't wait till you're better. Don't wait till you fix yourself because you're not going to fix yourself. Come to the table. Receive grace. Let it transform you. Father, I pray for this body as they contemplate that the weight of their sin would fall on them, that they would understand the unrighteousness that is in their heart, and that when they feel that crisis of what to do with it, they would see you standing there with open hands to give them grace. And I pray that they would come and receive. In Jesus' name, amen.